that's when she discovered that they used to bring the whole flock of sheep or goats inside in the winter. Oh, it was like one of those where you had the barn on the bottom and the, the people quarters on top? No, no. They just apparently back in the day brought many of the animals inside and what was beneath the carpet took a lot of layers of sanding and the smell never went away. Hi, welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we're talking with Katie Stemick, a financial planner? Yes. That's the official title? Yes, financial planner. Perfect. Okay. We met again doing stuff around town in Fayetteville, and we had some conversations about farms and farm households, because 95% of the farms in the U.S. are, are family farms, and finances. So there's a huge amount of overlap between what's happening in the farm sector and just how family finances can actually explain a lot of that because farms are really kind of driven by people's personal household finances. So in the vein of that, Katie, welcome. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm excited to join you. Um, so my background really is in personal financial planning. Um, I spent about 10 years working one-on-one with clients, helping them figure out what their most important goals are in life, helping them design a life that they want to live, and then just using finances as a tool to make that happen. So that is overlapped with a lot of investment planning, everything from cash flow, budgeting to risk management. Um, but the theme of what I've worked with most clients about is really designing a life that they love to live and using finances as a tool to uh, make that happen with a lot less stress. Right. Yeah. And it yeah. helps. Therapy is great for some things. A financial planner is great for other things. <laughs> <laughs> there is some overlap there, too. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. When it comes to agricultural finance, I think we've talked a lot about how the core of even a lot of business finance and business planning comes down to the fundamentals of personal financial planning. Even when I work with business clients, which I really love to do, we always make sure that there is a strong and clear foundation, not just of their personal finances, but what their personal goals are of that business. And I think that will probably overlap considerably with our conversation today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's the thing is like money is very, very emotional and it's part of all of our lives. And farms are also very emotional and food is part of all of our lives. So we're just getting into all the hangups today. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I've never thought of it that way. Yes. Money and food are both rather necessary parts of our lives. (laughs) Yeah. And um, they, they just, you know, they govern a lot of what we do and how we spend our time. So we're going to get into it. When I started working in agriculture, at first I was working for farmers, you know, and that's just kind of a job where you go where you're told and do what you're told. And then I started working with farmers and you kind of saw the decision-making processes that they used. And I would say it raised a lot more questions for me than it answered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, working with farmers and seeing how they actually made decisions. I was like, why though? Very interesting inside look. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way the farm industry is structured, there's really not supposed to be a lot of upward mobility. If you're working in the field, you're supposed to stay there Mm. pretty much indefinitely. So Mm -hmm. to move from the field into the office is a weird thing to do. Definitely helps that I'm a U.S. citizen and white, you know, that it helps explain why that journey was able to happen. There are people who kind of make that jump who are not like me. You know, a lot of folks who like kind of start from a farm worker angle can work out to being farm managers and stuff like that. So it's not impossible. But it's not a clear trajectory. Yeah, there, there's less of a tr- clear tra- trajectory. And the funny thing is, it's actually easiest to do that in California. <laughs> yeah. 
because just the labor structure of agriculture out there is different. And I think that's actually why we hear so many of the labor horror stories in California is because there is more openness, more people can unionize. So it's funny to me that the place with the most upward mobility in farm workers in the U.S. is the place that everyone thinks is the worst for farm workers because that's where you hear the horror stories from. We should be worried about the places we never hear from the farm workers in because they're everywhere. Yes. We, there's just a lot more visibility mm-hmm. where we can access their stories. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. So that was a bit of a digression. But yeah, like that, it's just a bit of an unusual journey. It's not that nobody else makes it, but it does give me a really interesting look at what's happening in farms. And one of the things I started noticing once I started working with farmers, you know, because a lot of these are, are smaller family farms, 95% of the farms in the U.S. are family owned and operated. And it was funny because the clients would always say, I bet you don't get a lot of little guys like us. And it started to hit me weird after a while because I started going, all of you are small family farmers. Like that's most of our client base. And all of them think they're the only one. <laughs> yeah, their own perception is that they were rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that was, okay. yeah, it was like the vast majority of our client base. And I was like, what is going on here? And it made me start asking questions. I'm traveling all over the place. I'm seeing all these different operations. I'm seeing a huge mismatch between the attitudes we have in agriculture and the facts I'm seeing on the ground. Another one that kept coming up was, oh, we're a small farmer, so we're poor. Well, mm. we were having this meeting in their kitchen or their barn because they had outbuildings on their properties. And I thought, I see your house and I see where I live and they are not the same. <laughs> yeah, we have very different definitions of poor here. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And so that was yeah. kind of my introduction to uh, people who are wealthy, mm. rarely self-identify as wealthy. We've had this conversation before. Yes. It can happen to anyone. It can happen to all of us. Especially if you actually do start out poor and you kind of get into a more secure position, that can be very hard to wrap your head around sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's also a thing that happens is a lot of folks who are more comfortable still self-identify as poor. Because I think we, we only see the things that aren't going well. We see the things that we, you know, the broken truck we can't fix. And we don't think, well, I have three trucks. <laughs> yes. And our relationship with money is often just an ingrained mindset. It really can be empowering to kind of disconnect how we've always been brought up to think about money in a very emotional way with viewing it simply as a tool. That's why I really like to help people like separate the life planning part of it and the what are my finances currently part of it. Because often, uh, you know, I kind of got into this at, at the start of my career. It was a similar curiosity, right? So interesting to see how everyone spends their money differently and the choices that everyone makes and looking at someone's budget or their bank account can be very personal. But just like you saw the repetition, like, oh, I'm probably the only little guy you've seen, you know, the repetition was interesting because over year after year after year, I started to notice such broad trends. And there was a a great deal of like either pride or shame around money. And I realized there is nothing to be embarrassed about and nothing I haven't seen. So where people would be like, oh, I'm kind of scared to show you this. I'd be like, literally cannot surprise me. <laughs> and it starts to look the same, right? And it starts to look the same in trends, broader trends of how people identify with their money, rather than seeing it simply as a tool to education, to send their kids to college, a tool to have this kind of house that they want or the life that they want. So I like to separate out the life planning and the upbringing associated with money as much as it can because of that fact. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we tend to blur the two. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we're definitely trained to put a lot of our like personal value and fear and self-worth and just like anxiety and money because it oh, yeah. does dominate our lives so much. Like it's it's kind of yeah. understandable and natural that people get a lot of anxiety about it, but it doesn't help. 
should probably have a farm. <laughs> yeah, we, we bring it back together. Like once we separate out the life planning and the current finances, we can bring it back together. But usually if we talk about the two together, things get muddy in a very interesting way, like you experience with people identifying as poor or not realizing that the small farm is actually not that small. <laughs> Yeah. Like that was a thing, like, I guess to kind of bring it back together, like we've both spent a lot of time being really up in people's business, right? Like you're all up in their money and their accounts. I'm all up in like, here's your property. Here's how your stuff functions. Here's how everybody on your property gets along. Yeah. The thing that really just kind of stuck out to me at first was they're living in what are pretty standard, like suburban type standalone houses. It's, it's kind of funny to me that we have a farmhouse decor genre because I'm like, farmhouses are just houses. Yep. I love old houses, but yeah. So, okay. So you were visiting these farms, yeah. saw people in their farmhouses that were mm -hmm. not near the condition of graduate yeah. student houses. Yeah. For the most part, they're just normal houses, right? And a lot of these families, because they're made up of like all these farm families that intermarried over years and years, after a few generations of farm families marrying each other, you wind up with kind of a patchwork of properties. It's not like, oh, we have our one homestead that's 40 acres. You have a patchwork of properties all over the county or multiple counties, right? So okay. a lot of these families had another house somewhere else that w was falling apart and full of bats. And that's the one that they would let the foreman live in. Hmm. And then I was okay. like, oh, I see where I fit into this picture. I live in a foreman house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working yeah. with these clients day in and day out who are like, well, I'm poor, while they're making their foreman live in the kind of place I was living. And I was like, I don't think poor means the same thing to me and you is what I'm thinking is happening here. <laughs> mm -hmm. But there's always someone else to compare ourselves to. Mm -hmm. That is another trend that I see. And a lot of people ask, well, how am I doing compared to like my peers? Uh, if they have different goals, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but they probably had someone else to look up to to see, well, you know. Yeah. Compared to that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. this sparked your curiosity and what was really going on in yeah. small well, farming? Yeah. yeah, it sparked my curiosity. And, you know, like you said, it really kind of depends on who you're comparing yourself to, right? And I started to realize that farmers were not like they're surrounded by farm workers they know how poor their foreman is. He needs a place to live and they know where they're sending him, right? And then there's like the workers who are living in barracks, hotels over the week, trailer homes that are in squalid condition. The farmers are seeing all this happening and they're still insisting, I'm poor. And I started thinking, this says something to me about who you think counts as a person. <laughs> and, and a scarcity mindset. You know, uh -huh. I, I feel like that really speaks to feeling like there's not enough to go around mm -hmm. if they see other people in definitely worse conditions, but don't see that they have the personal capacity to make that any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I really just started seeing some interesting psychology going on with money. And it made me start asking some questions. Because as you know, like who we compare ourselves to, feelings, personal values, these can all really, really impact how we perceive wealth and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So I started looking up numbers because numbers are facts and they're not feelings. And yes. stuff got even crazier once data got involved. So uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I learned a bunch of things and I'm going to inflict them on you. <laughs> 